and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. It's time for Gavin Williamson to spend more time with his pet tarantula. <laughs> but just how did he rise so high in the first place? The Democrats did better than expected in the midterms. Does that spell the end for Donald Trump? And is Ron DeSantis going to take the Republican presidential nomination? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the chief twit continues to drive away users and advertisers. Can we do without Twitter and what has it done to us? Let's meet today's panel. Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hi, Ian. Hello. Boris Johnson is having another go at inserting the former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre into the Lords, and we are once again expecting to see Baroness Doris. I confess I'm getting tired of hearing venerable people saying, I have enormous respect for the Lords as an institution, but... I mean, how much longer can we put up with this? Uh, as you know, I, I do have an enormous respect for the Lords as an institution. <laughs> I'm very fond of it. Um, uh, well, I mean, the problem isn't the Lords, is it? The, the problem is um, the House of Lords Appointment Commission doesn't uh, have enough power. It needs to be put on such a Tory footing. And you need to be able to bring a PM or a party leader there and go, show us your fucking workings. Exactly. These are the standards by which you must abide when you make nominations uh, for the House and allow them to veto it, not to be overruled by the Prime Minister or by a party leader or anyone else. So I mean, the problem isn't, it's not a very big problem. It's quite a small one. And actually during New Labour's times that there were ideas around taking this power away from the Prime Minister. You can, you can protect what's good about the Lords while, while getting rid of all this nonsense quite, quite easily, I would say. Yeah. So mm. the institution still good. Really? Still excellent. Yeah. Really? I, mean, uh, I wish I, wish I shared your optimism, way. but yeah. <laughs> I, I feel it's, it's, it's broken. It's broken. Well, you, you persistently believe in this democracy idea, which I've never felt very strongly about. <laughs> I think really I, we need to stop it from getting in the way of what the I House of Lords does. I just don't like people being appointed to the second chamber <laughs> <laughs> on spurious grounds. <laughs> Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch, a brand new series out now on your favourite app and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Roz. In the next general election, the government is going to make you show ID before voting. Passports, driving licences and elderly people's bus passes are on the list. But what will you do if you don't have any of the approved ID? Well, this this list um, uh, emerged in the last few days. And, and what's striking about it is that there's a long list of things that elderly people have. And of course, elderly people uh, tend to vote Conservative. And there's almost nothing on there that young people have. So sort of student ID cards young persons, travel cards, those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you don't have any of the approved ID, supposedly local authorities, if you apply in advance, will issue special voter cards, which, again, sounds like a system targeted to exclude people whose lives are slightly less organised, slightly less um, uh, stable, and and thereby, again, uh, an excellent bit of voter repression. So it's um, what we're looking at is the sort of GOPification, which is a new word I've just invented, of the Tory party. <laughs> uh, uh, and vote, vote, voter suppression is, is one of the things they see happening on the other side of the Atlantic and think, oh, we could do that here. Is the answer to just issue everyone with a government ID? Yes. And as someone who is, uh, feels I'm, I'm definitely a liberal, I've never felt that a government ID would be a ter terrible setback for, for, for liberalism in general, because I think it would actually enable lots of other things, uh, many of which would turn out to be quite liberal outcomes. And, and this might be one of them. Because, of course, uh, a lot of the other forms of ID that are there are ones that you would have to pay for. I've had people say to me, on online. Well, you know, all young people have ID so they can go and buy alcohol. Well, last time I checked, 
uh, a lot of young people don't drink alcohol these days. So I think we, you know, we have to get out of making assumptions. Uh, all young people have passports. They do if they're middle class and go on a foreign holidays. Not all young people do that. So I think, uh, yeah, if you just got issued an official ID by the government and you didn't have to pay for it, that would probably be a good thing. Um, Ian was shaking his head <laughs> earlier. Yes, I'm not a huge fan of ID cards, as you can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> we can we can save that for another podcast. ID cards, what good or bad? Our guest this week is co-director of the Centre for U.S. Politics at University College London, Julie Norman. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. How are you feeling about the results? Yeah, I would say this was probably the best result Democrats could have hoped for. I mean, we were bracing for what uh, Barack Obama called a shellacking 10 years ago. And uh, the fact that the House looks like it'll just be a very slim uh, majority for Republicans, the fact that the Senate is still in play and could very well go to Democrats still is a much better position than I think many people thought Democrats would be in going into Tuesday. There were a lot of wins at the state level also, key uh, gubernatorial races where some of the Trump and MAGA-backed candidates, uh, there was a really firm rejection of them and uh, some really uh, positive signs for those uh, advocating for reproductive rights in terms of some of the referendums, even in some conservative states. Well, we're going to have a lot more on the midterms later. Before we get started, some news. It wouldn't be Christmas without an Oh God, What Now live show. And this year, it'll be a bit different. We're doing an up-close and personal Oh God, What Now? Unplugged-style live podcast at 21 Soho in London, a brilliant venue that's handy for Tottenham Court Road, so you can even get the Elizabeth line if you like. It's happening on Monday the 12th of December with me, plus Naomi and Alex, all hosted by Dorian. We'll be surveying the wreckage of 2022, looking ahead to next year, and of course answering your questions. And for once, you'll be able to see the whites of our eyes. Tickets are very limited and they're selling fast now. Follow the link in the show notes or just go to 21-soho.com and find us under the comedy tab, presumably because they don't have a political nightmare support groups tab. (laughs) That's a very oh God, what now Christmas on Monday the 12th of December from 7pm to 9pm at 21 Soho. Oh come, let us deplore them. Last night, Gavin Williamson bowed to Rishi Sunak's disapproving noises and said he would be stepping down from the cabinet to clear his name. The former minister, with very small portfolio, said he refuted the characterisation of the accusations against him. A brief reminder of those, Williamson sent sweary and abusive messages... Sorry. William sent sweary and abusive messages to the chief whip when he found out he couldn't go to the Queen's funeral. A senior civil servant says he told them to slit their throat, and another former whip said he'd been threatening and intimidating. The big winner from this debacle is, of course, Cronus the Tarantula. I did a bit of research for this, and if he is indeed a male tarantula, as you would expect from his name, then he's approaching the end of his life and will probably appreciate some more time with Sir Gavin. But the question remains, why did Sunak appoint someone both so incompetent and so unpleasant? Arthur, what special source did Gavin Williamson have that made him so attractive to prime ministers? Well, that's not necessarily an easy question to answer. But I think in his own reckoning, and perhaps in that of those that appointed him, He's that sort of bargain basement uh, Francis Urquhart. You know, he's the kind of chief whip who's willing to do the things that the others won't do. And of course, we shouldn't forget that we're living in a world where people like James Cleverley and Nadine Dorries are are reliably appointed to high office. So, So in a world where 
almost anyone is good enough. He is the sort of the best of that type of kind of arsehole bully, which is what he revels in as a kind of profile. Ian, being a chief whip, as Williamson was under Theresa May, is not a job for the faint of heart. What kind of person succeeds at it? Traditionally, bastards. Um, but less and less so as time goes on. There's a few sort of factors for why that happened. I mean, one of them was the increase in office space. So when they built Portcullis House, which is that kind of monstrous dystopian building, you know, right next, there was a, a lot more sort of MPs office space. And that was one of the sort of core bits of leverage that the whips could use. It'd be like, fine, you know, you want to misbehave, I'll put you in the fucking basement and you're going to lose your penthouse sort of, you know, office with all the lovely views. There was also a degradation of their powers when they started having elections to the select committees before the whips used to pick those positions that was just a bit more leverage that they could use as to whether you get these they've lost lots of those powers and so gradually as that's happened you still get the i'll reveal your affair to the male stuff but actually even that is like a degradation in their leverage a process that was you know had rocket boosters by the fact that boris johnson became prime minister and you're like what well, if he's getting away with that shit anyone can get away with anything um, so all of that has sort of led to a change in the role a bit where they're now supposed to be more of a sort of information transfer membrane of keeping the sort of, yeah, I'm sorry to use the word membrane in relation to Gavin Williams, but but there we are. Um, in supposed to be sort of keeping information going to the leadership about potential rebellions and vice versa, rather than that kind of dark arts stuff that you would have seen before. So they're in a way more like spies for the PM. Well, they're supposed to be, but they haven't been very good at it for a very long time, as you can see, you know, as is evidenced by how many rebellions we've had over the last few years. So really, it's an odd, it's an increasingly odd role where they, they're a little bit neutralized in terms of sort of their more severe tactics and have proved profoundly incompetent at some of the less severe tactics. I mean, is it possible to do it without being thoroughly unpleasant because you could see a world and I'm not saying this is going to be a world that exists where the whips had a kind of almost pastoral role where they explain <laughs> why it was in your best interest to vote for a particular piece of legislation and you know they, they helped you and, and, and introduced you to some of the uh, ludicrous rituals of the, of the commons and so on is there any of that going on or is it just pure whip? No, they fucking their main source of power now, I would say, is the control of information and specifically about what you just alluded to, which is how the commons works. You know, you look at if you go into most debates, most MPs have no fucking idea what they are voting on. And you cannot if you're observing it. It's not even enough to sit there with the, with the bill in front of you. You're going to need about five other bills in order to understand what an amendment does. Most other parliaments have fixed this. They just go, well, you've got to put the paragraph as amended so that someone can just look at what it is you're trying to do. Instead, you've got a paragraph of like, as per, you know, 1986 Act, Section A replaced with this. No one can fucking understand it. And MPs don't understand it either. The procedures, the conventions, the rules, whether they're in Erskine May, whether they're not written down anywhere at all, whether they come from the precedents of, of former speakers, none of that is explained. And so the mystery of that place is part of the armory of the whips in order to exclude MPs from knowledge and increase their control and get the votes through. So at the moment, that's predominantly the kind of thing that they use. Very occasionally you'll hear MPs say something like, I was going to rebel so the whip put me in touch with these other MPs who they know I'm sympathetic towards who are not going to rebel to have a chat. And that, I mean, while still fairly sort of controlling, is at least a little bit more pastoral and a little bit more collegiate than you get the rest of the time. But predominantly it's done through control of information. Julie, is there an equivalent role in US politics? 
Yeah, we have whips as well, and oh. uh, they're they're very active in the House of Representatives to literally like whip the vote in that way and get party members on board. Especially these days, when we see the kind of fracturing in the party, that role is really mm-hmm. crucial. Um, but I do find all of this uh, really interesting with just the 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 bullying kind of allegations, just coming from a country with with Trump, but just some of the bullying that we've, <laughs> we've heard reported just seems quite quaint, actually. And so I was like, oh God, like I I mean I I, I it's all like very uh, well pointed, and I. I understand why it's a thing, but um, but it seems by by relative terms, um, maybe not as as grim as it could be, perhaps. But I think there's quite a useful emotional relationship between Britain and the US at the moment, which is that you guys get to look at us like we're quite cute and it's not so bad. We get to look <laughs> at you and be like, shit, at least it's not that bad. Like- <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's, it's always it's always worse on the other side. So. Arthur, Williamson's record as Education Secretary during the pandemic is something that I won't forget in a hurry. I mean, the highlight perhaps being when he said kids could go back to school over the summer and then introduce rules that made that practically impossible. What did he do at Defence, though? Were you keeping an eye on him and, you know, watching what he was up to? Indeed. Um, I mean, we could start with the end of his time at Defence, where he was sacked for uh, leaking information from the National Security Council, which is... um, you know, it's, it's an interesting look, basically, for someone who's responsible for the defence of the country. Well, he, he had various sort of high points. Um, he gave a speech where he said that Russia should shut up and go away. <laughs> and you could hear them quaking in the Kremlin when, when did, that Did that work, off it? Yeah, no, it did. It did. It had, had a big impact. Yeah. <laughs> and I know from people who, who were, you know, in, in the ministry that uh, he was that worst kind of embarrassing middle-aged guy who's never been in any military service but gets incredibly excited when he gets <laughs> to meet real military people and uh, practically wet himself when he went on his tour of the SAS headquarters. So you, you can imagine, I mean, if you take a uh, fireplace salesman, and, and don't get me wrong, selling fireplaces is a legitimate and important activity, but that, that was his background. Um, you take a fireplace salesman and sort of post him Alan Partridge style into... Uh, the Ministry of Defence, you, you get the result you expect. And of course, his relationship with Russia was was a what you might call a nuanced one, because he took uh, £30,000 from the wife of one of Putin's finance ministers uh, for the very dubious and frankly disturbing uh, honour of having dinner with him in a bunker, um, which of course, you know, most of us would pay 30 grand not to do that. So yeah, it was, it was a colourful period in our national defence history. I did not know about that. Surely that is the kind of thing that ought to have barred him from any kind of high office. But then I could find myself saying that phrase many times, couldn't I? Well, you do end up with the sort of who's left to a point uh, issue, which I think um, we've reached that part of Britain's political history. <laughs> Ian, what does the decision to keep Williamson close say about Sunak's judgment? I, I sort of feel that you're asking questions to which you already know the answer there. Damn. <laughs> no, I'm open-minded about Sunak's judgment. I know very little of the man, really. He's been in office only a few weeks. Let's, let's, well, he's had let's... two weeks, hasn't he? And he's already fucked up in any number of ways. I mean, the first is obviously with the COP summit. Second is with Swella Braverman. And the third is with Gavin Williams. And, I mean, he, he was part of his summer leadership campaign, He's supposed to be apparently a very good organiser behind the scenes. But people always say this about people from the bits of them that you don't get to see. Remember, for years, you'd hear about Dominic Raab. You'd be like, oh, no, he's a fucking, he's like the big brains in the Eurosceptic movement and the anti-human right. And then you you see the bill, the Bill of Rights bill, arguably the worst titled piece of legislation of all time. You're like, well, this is not 
the product of someone with even half a brain, let alone big brains. Then I'd say the same would probably go for Gavin Williamson's um, tactics in terms of the campaign over the summer. So that's why he did it. He did it to go over to him. And it's not like Sunak is unusual in this, right? Like, I mean, every prime minister does reshuffles on the basis of maintaining their internal authority. Do you need to balance, you know, all of Theresa May's reshuffles are about balancing Remainers and Brexiters. Now, regardless of whether we think that's a better thing than Boris Johnson getting rid of all the Remainers and trying to shoot them in a ditch somewhere, you might still think it's just about her own internal position. It's not about the actual quality of someone, let alone any kind of specialist knowledge, let alone their competence. And that's exactly the reason that he was given the minister without portfolio position, the most nebulous and mercurial of all ministerial positions. The interesting thing, though, about it is he's not really the head of a faction. You know, he's not he's not like Steve Baker. He's not he doesn't appear to stand for any particular ideological position. But is that the secret of his strength? I mean, he's always been quite right wing. I think the thing is, the reason the, the reason he struggles in factions is because everyone thinks that he's a twat. I don't think it's an, a lack of ideology. You know, he was always, you know, tr defense spending. It's certainly exactly the same with hard Brexit. If you remember, he kept on breaking ranks when he was defense secretary against Theresa May for, for a harder Brexit. He's been fairly consistent in just being part of that sort of hapless reactionary wing of, of the party. So I think it's the, the reason he's just not in a faction, just no one likes to deal with him. No one likes to work with him. He always ends up harassing or bullying them. You, you remember the absurd photos of him with a whip in, you know, on the mm. desk in front of him, all the stories about a tarantula, like just this pound shop child Bond villain, you know, and people just think you're, you're a dick, like I don't want to work with him. But I don't think it's a lack of ideological conviction. For what it's worth, he does have ideology and it is typically awful. Arthur, the other member of the cabinet in danger is, of course, Suella Braverman. There's Such a talk. shame. <laughs> yes. There's, there's talk of a better deal with France to try to reduce the number of small boats coming across, which is, of course, one of her biggest problems at the moment. What might a deal like that look like? Do you sense it might be approaching? Well, it, it's interesting. Um because, uh, yes, number 10, after the apparently very positive meeting between Sunak and Macron, uh, reported that they were closing in on a deal. But if you look at the French account of that meeting, the, there is no mention of such a deal and the pos possibility of closing in on it. So I suspect that the Brits feel the need to pretend that they've got a deal nearly there. And there's a bit of kind of chat in, in, in the sort of... Um, you know, sock puppet journalist accounts of how they're going to uh, spend £70 million on drones and, and British officials might be posted in France to, uh, to sort of manage some of these migration issues. But it's not clear to me that there is actually any serious prospect of a deal. Uh, and, of course, the, what the deal would need to involve is an opportunity for migrants to be able to apply legally for asylum in the UK from France, because that would stop them getting on the boats. And this is the at the heart of the, the cynical dishonesty uh, in the government's position, is if they cared at all about the people drowning in the boats, that's what they do, but they don't care. Mm. Clearly, there's been improvement in Anglo- British-French relations, because you know, we saw we saw Sunak and we saw Emmanuel Macron going in for some sort of embrace at COP27 this week. Um, how do you, good do you think the Sunak premiership is going to be at diplomacy? I think it is going to be pretty good, actually. And, and um, you know, I'm no supporter, but uh, he's he obviously has this sort of personal manner that is quite pleasant. Um, he didn't, during his uh, leadership campaign, the real one with Liz Truss, sort of fall into these silly traps like Truss mm. did about being offensive about uh, global leaders. And 
you know, he's got certain advantages. Uh, he, he, I imagine, will find it easy, and this is not simply because of his ethnicity, but don't forget he's married to an Indian national whose father owns a vast business there. I imagine he will find it easy to develop strong relations there with um, Modi's India. Um, so, I, yeah, I, th- I think we've got someone who comes with a relatively sort of clean sheet uh, that hasn't gone around the world being rude about people as Liz Trust did. And of course, Boris Johnson had a very long uh, record of doing that. It's quite nice, isn't it, the Macron stuff, even though you don't want to take it away from him. It's just like, I am like pathetically sentimental about the British-French relationship. And so just watching the just absolute disgrace that consecutive prime ministers have made of it, the pathetic, just a boilerplate statement of we are allies from, from Sunak was just like, oh, thank Christ, thank God alive someone is saying that. It does actually mean something and you've got to give him credit for it, even though it's a very, very low threshold for him to have hurdled. Yeah. Macron is extremely good at the, um, the well-honed diplomatic statement at big occasions. He really just, he just has the intonation, he has everything. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, Ian, one of Sunak's weaknesses, though, is that he isn't very engaged in policy that isn't about the economy. He just doesn't seem to have thought about it much. I mean, I don't know how you can say that. If you remember when he was asked about climate change, he said that he learned everything he had to think about it from his two daughters around the kitchen table. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he he, he told COP27 that. And <laughs> when he told COP27 that um, it was uh, more and more important to tackle the energy crisis because of the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, that again was the kind of insight that I'm, I'm, I'm begging to hear. <laughs> but uh, is it going to start being a liability? Because he can't, he hasn't got a strong cabinet team, let's face it, to do this stuff for him, to do this thinking for him. Yeah, you know, that, but that, and that is the crucial point, isn't it? That if you can, it's all right to be focused on one thing. And especially at a moment like this, it's all right to be focused on the economics. OK, that makes complete sense. It's what you would have wanted from Brown in 2008, etc. But the sort of counterpoint to that is you do need to have some big beasts around you at the cabinet table who can be left to their little policy fiefdom that you're not fucking interested in and that you can trust. So you can leave them with education, leave them with home affairs and just let them get on with it. Now, he doesn't have that. And where he does have sort of big beasts, I use that, you know, with the heaviest fucking quotation marks, there are people like Sweller Braverman who are pursuing their own agenda according to their own internal you know, desires to, 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 to increase their standing in the Conservative Party and who are profoundly inept. So, no, he's, he's, dug, his own, he's dug his own grave on that one. Yesterday, the US voted in the midterm elections, and it hasn't been quite so bad for the Democrats as expected. The Republicans are very likely to win the House of Representatives, but it's very close in the Senate, with the Democrats on 48 and the Republicans on 47 at the time of recording. It's going to come down to Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia and Nevada. Julie, the big winner last night was the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Are we looking at the 2024 Republican presidential candidate here? Well, DeSantis, by all counts, had an excellent night. Uh, not only a victory, but a double-digit victory, almost 20 points, uh, when he only won by about half a percentage point last time around. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but in very key places, he flipped several districts that have really been Democratic strongholds for several decades now, got a very large proportion of the Hispanic Latino vote. So it was a win, and it was a big win in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, I already saw DeSantis 
DeSantis as someone who was probably the one potential challenger to Trump going into Tuesday. I think he's come out as a definitely potential challenge to Trump in a way that I, I don't think he was before. Uh, he will definitely get the attention of anyone in the party who wasn't paying attention before. And I think in terms of just challenging Trump, I think it will create a bit of light in the party. Like he's opened up a space for Republicans to be able to uh to pivot away from Trump if they choose to. Not that a pivot to DeSantis is something that most liberals in the U.S. would want either, but it is. it will be a change for Republicans, and it will put Trump in a much more challenged position than he's been really since he started his trajectory back in 2016. What are the issues that DeSantis run on and went on? Yes, so DeSantis is probably the biggest uh, culture war kind of uh, Republican, if you will. So oh, really, yeah, on Florida, that's where they had the the bill that was called the Don't Say Gay Bill, really trying to push back at um, any kind of curriculum or even discussion of LGBT issues of gender in classrooms, um, push back at Disney and other corporations that were challenging him on this. So been very vocal on this. Interesting talking about immigration here. Immigration is the other big issue for DeSantis. He was behind the um, stunt, if you will, of um, kind of uh, busing or just taking groups of migrants and depositing them in different uh, Democrat strongholds, really just to prove a point. So he's really showed that uh, all things are on the table for him in proving that he is really the conservative candidate. Trump may have the bluster, may have the rhetoric, but in terms of the real culture issues that a lot of Republicans vote on, DeSantis is trying to make himself the go-to person for those. How competent is he compared to Trump? Because, you know, Trump is a thoroughly unpleasant, dangerous person, but also quite an incompetent president. Would DeSantis be similar or is he different? Yeah, I think that's where the the danger for uh, for many of us for DeSantis is, is because even a lot of Republicans say for Trump, you know, we don't mind and we just wish he didn't talk to talk as much. For DeSantis, it's almost the opposite. He's very smooth. He's a very savvy politician. He's young. He's in his mid-40s, uh, just has a very different uh, image and projection than Trump does. So he can get that populism that Trump introduced to the Republican Party. Party, but package in a way that's more with uh, really traditional right-wing conservatism and with someone who's a much smoother uh, communicator than, than Trump was, even though Trump's method obviously worked for him in many ways too. Is he as mad? Would he do the same thing, for instance, with election? Could you imagine him doing the same thing? It's a good question. My sense is is not to the extent that Trump and the the MAGA movement would. With that said, DeSantis was one who, uh, you know, supported Trump in the questioning the election and whatnot. So he didn't cross Trump on that. Mm. But he also hasn't made that one of his key talking points in the campaign regarding Trump or himself or anyone else. So for Americans who that is like the primary concern is just please just give us our elections back. Like, I think DeSantis is is one reason why some Republicans will be betting on him more than Trump moving forward. So as you say, Trump didn't have a very enjoyable night. Uh, some of the people he'd backed really tanked at the polls. And he, he warned DeSantis that if he runs, he could hurt himself very badly. <laughs> um, I think there was a threat that he could expose something about DeSantis that DeSantis would rather not have exposed. Uh, Do you think Trump will eventually fade into the sunset? Yeah, I I think people have that hope, but I really don't see that happening soon. I mean, he will likely announce a run sooner rather than later. And as Trump does, I think he will spin this election to his advantage. You know, he will say where Republicans did well, it was because of him. Where they didn't do well is because he personally was not on the ticket. 
ticket. So I, I just see Trump doing that. And you can see through the rallies that he's had over these last few days and weeks, still draws a massive crowd, still has a lot of momentum going into what will be the primary season fairly soon. And really up until today, actually, has been you know polling still ahead of DeSantis. Again, I think that margin has been shrinking and will probably shrink even more. But Trump still has just as good of a shot as it is anyone else. And uh, I think he'll try and draw that out as long as possible. Oh, dear. Let's talk about the Democrats. Um, it looks as though they will lose control of the House of Representatives, though more narrowly than we would have expected. How difficult is it going to be for Joe Biden to push through his agenda now? Yeah, I mean, Biden's agenda is pretty much uh, done now. And I think they knew that. I mean, they knew they would probably lose at least the House. So that was one reason we saw a flurry of legislation over this last summer to try and get a lot of the real key priorities through because they just knew we'd be entering this probably divided government, more gridlock situation. So I would say kind of gridlock at best for Biden. At worst, he'll probably get rather pummeled by a number of uh, investigations that the House will likely launch into his son, Hunter Biden, into his administration handling of everything from COVID to Afghanistan. So Republicans will try and use this time to just ensure that Biden is a one-term president, just use the power that they do have to not pass legislation, but just to air all the bad stuff that they want about uh, Biden and keep that on the national radar for the next two years. So obviously, if Democrats hold the Senate, it will be helpful to him. They can't do much with that, but they can at least keep getting um, what are kind of key judicial appointments through, which sounds rather like nerdy and boring, but actually makes a big difference to have federal judgeships appointed by uh, d- uh, by the person of your party. Mm-hmm. How badly do you think Joe Biden wants to run for the presidency again? Because I think this is something that in Britain we struggle to understand. He feels too old to be running for the presidency again. And yet in the US, that seems less of a problem. Is there a way, a way out for him? And especially given the results we've seen, which are not as bad as expected, is he likely to take this as an endorsement? Yeah, I think it's it's quietly a problem in the U.S., but because he's the incumbent uh, and because he's suggesting he probably will run, which he kind of has to do at this point, most Democrats are not quite ready to vocally start saying it's time to step aside. I think, you know, it, pe- Democrats wouldn't trade the results of yesterday, but the one silver lining of a real pummeling would have been a message to Joe Biden, a reason for him to say, it's time for me to step aside. Let me be a transitional guy. I'm out. But with that said, I think Democrats being realistic, these conversations are going to start happening no matter what. Um, the challenge, of course, is there's not a clear uh, person to pass the baton to. Um, you know, Vice Pre- President Kamala Harris has been uh, very weak in that role uh, so far, has also not been popular. So the field is really quite open for Democrats. And I really do think we'll start seeing uh, a lot more attention to what that contest might look like. Do you have any tips for people who you think could come forward in the next few months? Well, I think some of the guard from the last election cycle will put their names in the ring again. Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. Um, But I think people who got a bump last night and and today uh, will also start signaling for their runs, too. So Gretchen Whitmer, the uh, governor of Michigan, and possibly some new faces as well. Um, Wes Moore is the first black uh, governor for uh, Maryland. Uh, He has a lot of charisma and a lot of people are excited about him. So there's, like I said, the field is open and I almost expect it to be someone that maybe we don't know so much about. Yet, who can step into that space? Pennsylvania was a welcome win for the Democrats. What happens there? There were some big personalities competing. Yeah, Pennsylvania was a key state, and it was a big showdown between uh, Dr. Oz, who some people may be familiar with on the Republican ticket. He was backed by Trump. And then uh, John Fetterman for the Democrats, who, despite being 
Harvard educated, grad school, et cetera, um, presented himself as your everyday guy, blue collar worker. Uh, he's known for his uh, shaved head, a black hoodie that he wears all the time, tattoos, um, a big guy. And so he really projected this sense of like, I'm your working class blue collar neighbor. And uh, and it was crucial in a state like Pennsylvania, I think, to break down the elite uh, coastal liberal image that a lot of Democrats have. So Fetterman's win was big. It won it. It flipped a Senate seat. So it was a seat that had been Republican in the past. So just on that alone. But it also, I think, says to Democrats, look, there's there's different ways to be a Democrat and to have that image. And we need to start experimenting with some of these if we're going to win back some of the electorate who we've lost to Trump and to the Republican Party lately. That's fascinating. There were five state referendums on abortion yesterday as well. What happened in those? Yeah, so abortion has obviously been a very big issue throughout this election since the Supreme Court decision over the summer. And there were two types of referendums happening. So in liberal states like Vermont and California, there was a referendum to ensure uh, abortion rights or ensure reproductive rights. And those passed as expected. There were other referendums in other states, however, that would have really uh, eliminated the access to abortion um, almost completely or absolutely completely in states like Kentucky and in states like Montana. And interestingly, uh, even in those states, uh, we've seen that the voters rejected those very absolute pro-life kinds of measures. And this has been a trend that we've seen since the Dobbs decision. Even conservative voters, even Republican voters do not want these extreme abortion measures that have no exceptions for rape and incest, no exceptions for health and life of the mother. And so this really is, a, uh, a, I think, a, a pivotal rebuke of that kind of approach for the pro-life movement and a sense that even for Republicans, there needs to be some moderation. Where does DeSantis stand on this? He obviously takes more the pro-life and conservative position on that. Um, I'm not sure what he's proposing specifically for Florida at this point, but it would be hard to get anything too extreme through Florida, I think. Uh, We're still waiting for Arizona. Barack Obama said it was the key state in the midterms. He warned that if the Republicans won, democracy as we know it may not survive. Was he right about that? Yeah, so Arizona is interesting. It has a couple of key races going. One is the Senate race, which I think people have focused on, and that looks like the Democrats will hold it. Where Arizona was more dangerous for this democracy question was some of the state-level races. Um, the governorship is very much in play, and uh, Carrie Lake, the Trump-backed candidate there, is one of the uh, most vocal election deniers and has kind of suggested that she would maybe not accept, uh, accept a defeat. Also, there was a candidate for what we call Secretary of State, the person who administers and certifies election results suggesting legislation that would uh, give the legislature great power to, to do uh, things that it hadn't before. So there, uh, I think the Secretary of State is lagging right now in that contest for Carrie Lake. It's still uh, too close to call, but it looks like uh, the senator, uh, the Senate ship will, will, will stay for Democrats. I'll just add the real state that I think this will all come down to, again, is Georgia for the Senate. Um, you know, Arizona, again, looks like Dems will take that for that count. Um, I think we'll be back to where we were in 2020 with the state of Georgia going into a runoff. Um, that's one state where you need to have 50 percent minimum of the vote. So it's very close right now between uh, Warnock and, um, and Walker. And so we may not know the Senate full makeup until December if there's a runoff there. And it may come down to that one single state again. Gosh. Arthur, anything you'd like to ask Julie? Uh, yeah, Julie, I I just wonder, going back to this sort of Trump-DeSantis rivalry, is, is the issue not so much that DeSantis has clearly been very successful on the ground in Florida winning all these races, but DeSantis doesn't lead a religious cult, whereas Trump does. 
And that's quite hard to sort of overcome, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is one reason why I don't think Trump is just going to fade away overnight. There is a a cult of personality there that is very deep and very wide in the U.S., and that's not just going to go away. But as we've seen, that has proven really helpful for primaries and when you're just working with your own party. But to actually win a general election, I think some Republicans are going to be thinking, who is actually the most electable? We've seen Trump now have candidates in two cycles that have not done well. Who's actually going to get us over the line in 2024? So it won't shift all or even most of his base, but a lot of Republicans who are in the middle space there, I think, will see DeSantis as as a welcome person in the field. Yeah, that's fascinating, Julie. Thanks for all the insight. Next up, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Remember, you can get your questions in too when you support us on Patreon. This week, Marina says... Boris Johnson's resignation list will elevate the Lords such political titans as Nadine Doris, failed London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, and a former assistant of his, that's Johnson's, called Charlotte Owens, who she. Who would be in the Oh God, What Now resignation honours, or would you end the whole charade? Um, Ian, as a um, supporter of the House of Lords, I think we should go direct to you for the why answer is your, to this. Why is your House of Lords expression when you ask me questions exactly the same as your monarchy expression? <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> as our resident institutional conservative. <laughs> you know how to hurt me, Arthur. <laughs> um, I don't know, I'd probably go for, I suppose I'd probably go for Sarah Williston, maybe. Do you remember the Tories? I mean, if we were to talk about, you know, what, where we can usefully introduce democracy... I think it's it, to, to take a lesson from the US, which is not a sentence that I say very often. Um, it's in the pri- open primaries. You know, we have this completely stitched up candidate selection process where, you know, a minority of a minority of a minority of the public in the form of the selection committee basically picks who who's going to run. And usually in a safe seat, no one gets to challenge it. That's basically the, that's where democracy is settled in, in a room somewhere that none of us ever sees. The way to do it is just to open it up. David Cameron did that. For a couple of elections back when he was, you know, had some ideals left. And Sarah Wollaston was one of the products of it. He got about a quarter of the vote. And she said, I'm going to work with other parties. I'm going to bring my expertise as a doctor. Expertise and cross-party cooperation for moderate policy solutions sounds pretty fucking good to me. That's what she pledged when it wasn't just about the sort of the partisans in the party making the decision. She got it. She was absolutely fucking brilliant as an MP. And of course, they made sure they never held another open primary again because it was a complete disaster for the whole way that Westminster is supposed to work. She was fucking great. She deserves the credit. It would be lovely to hear in the House of Lords. Well, of course, when we get proportional representation, um, then clearly, you know, the obvious shoo-in is uh, Baroness Smith, uh, Naomi, um, of Pimlico, <laughs> who obviously take over from whoever else is representing Pimlico. So, you know, although cl- clearly I deplore this entire system, uh, I suppose she, she would be my uh, preference for the moment. Um, Arthur, what's your take on the Lords in general? Do you think it still has some value? I'm I'm actually a bit hardline anti. I think it it you know it should be blown up. And um, I and, and obviously we it, it's the week of the fifth of November. But no, I mean my 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 recommendation would be Chris Grayling because you want a proper shit Midas who can bring the system down. Uh, and everything he goes near blows up and falls apart and is basically uh, you know. And I think we should start there. I'm I um I feel very strongly about. Uh, living in a country where legislators are either born or appointed, and it, it it's really something when when you've lived uh, overseas as a diplomat. Um, I mean, I literally remember once um, 
in Zimbabwe, someone saying, oh, yeah, you know, the Senate of Zimbabwe, the upper house is appointed from tribal chiefs. And I remember thinking, oh, how ridiculous, you know, what, a, what an absurd. Then as you scratch your head and you think that's literally what we do. And uh, I, I just think, I just think we're, we're not a democracy. I mean, we're not a democracy on many fronts. And I think this is one of the ways in which we aren't. You know, what we need is a Senate which is elected, which has representation that's regionally based. And obviously, because uh, we're inventing it in 2022, we can avoid the bear trap the US has where you have equal representation for California and Montana. And we can avoid um, other bear traps uh, in terms of creating a an upper house that is, is full of um, cynical politicians by having longer terms. There, there, are, there are so many options available to us. And but what we currently have is the unique combination of the inbred halfwits of the clinging on hereditaries and the cynical placemen. We, we've got um, Ross Kempsell just been appointed by Boris Johnson. He's 30 years old. So 60 years from now, when all of us panellists are long dead, Ross Kempsell will still be there legislating. I mean, it, it, it's just extraordinary. If you Arthur's being it. deeply unsound today. Um, <laughs> we should mention, and it does need to come mentioned, is that there is a third group obviously completely right about the hereditaries and they should go. And, and every year, the House of Lords tries to get rid of the hereditaries and, and they fail. Um, but there's a third group, which are the cross-party peers. And the cross-party peers are people of spectacular achievement in their life. They're very well selected, nothing to do with party uh, leaders. And they come in and exert deep specialist knowledge on legislation. And there's no other part of our system where that takes place. And I, t- I totally get, I get the arguments on democracy and, and I get it. But... Ultimately, people do need to think we've got a system that is amateurish in the fucking extreme. And there's one bit where specialists sit down and they fix legislation and they amend it and the amendments are accepted. And that's in the House of Lords. And we do need to think if we're going to reform it, where else is that going to happen? Because it is an absolutely necessary part of the legislative process. Yeah. And, and I, I, even as I was um, sticking it to the Lords, I, I was thinking, yeah, you don't forget the crossbenchers. And that's a really important point. And we shouldn't lose that expertise. But I personally, I don't feel they should be legislators. I, I feel that there are other ways to secure um, their their inputs. But, you know. If you were asked to go and serve your country there, Arthur, would you? No, I wouldn't. I, I you know, not that it's ever going to happen. But like the idea that I can be appointed to pass laws for other people. It's such a crazy idea. I'd be all over that shit. <laughs> So people, people always say, like, you know, oh, would you take the knighthood? You're like, fuck, the knighthoods are for mugs. What you need is a place in the House of Lords. Get something to well, do. You get the, 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 the restaurants and the money. The and the little yeah, park. it's fine. You get a little bit of money. You get yeah. to work on legislation. That's, yeah. that's the good stuff right there. I'm sorry, Ian, but I don't see it. I no, really don't. No, I, I suspect that it won't happen either. No. <laughs> no. Um, Julie, as a political scientist, what's your, what's your ideal upper chamber? Yeah, well, it's so interesting living here and then watching the U.S. and our Senate. I mean, it's interesting because the cross-party peer thing is such a fascinating thing that I mm. think our, would like behoove our Senate quite a bit. I mean, our Senate is just, it is where so much of the power is that the fact that the lords here are one appointed and just kind of like, I don't, I guess like they do make laws, but to me like seem like kind of like just like there and like don't really have, like, like if, if all of our democracy was just our House of Representatives, it'd be like, oh my God, like the Senate's a bit of a check on that. And mm. so the hereditary thing just seems very old school to me. I actually didn't know that that still happened. I knew they kind of like appointed people who are like done good things for society. And like, that's kind of interesting. But the, I think the, I, I, I give whoever there is trying to phase that out. It's, a lot it's of insane. And the worst thing is that it was a kind of deal that they, that Tony Blair did when he got rid of uh, all the rest of the hereditaries. I think there were 72 or 92 left. I can't remember exactly. 
around that figure. All the rest of them had to go. And they brokered a deal whereby a certain number would stay. But the worst thing is that we're not just waiting for them to die off. The lords get to elect more to replace them Uh. from the pool of hereditaries who are still waiting around on their country estates, awaiting the call to to service. This supply is constantly replenished. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it's going to (laughs) work. No, it's very bad. It's very, very embarrassing. It's very, very bad. And we should get rid of it. Also, the bishops. The bishops have no fucking role being. We're not a theocracy. There's no basis for them to be there. We can obviously get rid of those guys. And it'd be quite fun. Yeah. And it needs to be smaller anyway. It's just ridiculously large. It's huge. It's over 800 people. Oh, and, wow. And I think Boris Johnson appointed something the same number, like about 200 altogether. It's just bad. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Arthur, what's yours? Um, well, I... Something that I, I've sort of become a little bit obsessed with, it's, it's linked to climate change, but it's specific, and it's about permafrost in mountain regions. And basically, because I'm very into mountains, I like going climbing and everything. Mountains are big piles of rubble held together by ice. The ice is like the glue. And if you melt the ice, then the mountains fall down. And um, because I'm a, I read all these sort of geeky sites where climbers write about what, they've, what climbs they've recently done, something that happened this summer in the Alps is that loads of climbs that have been, you know, well-trodden mountaineering routes for decades are just becoming impossibly dangerous. Now, I mean, that on its own is, you know, if stupid people want to go climb mountains and get squished under boulders, that's their problem. (laughs) But there is a wider issue here that lots of uh, populations around the world, in the European Alps, in the Andes and other places, are now seriously endangered as well because traditional settlements, you know, mountain villages and towns and so on, which aren't close to large mountains, are no longer safe because these these mountains are going to sort of drop down and, and, you know, destroy villages and you've got collapsing glaciers and so on. Julie, have you gotten under the radar? Uh, Ella Abdel Fattah is uh, a British-Egyptian uh, activist who has been uh, detained and arrested in Egypt for a while and is, is on both a water and a hunger strike right now to bring attention to, to what's going on. His sister here in the UK uh, does a lot of advocacy for him. And, and to his credit, um, Rishi Sunak did say that he would raise that in, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh this week with, with Egypt to whatever extent he can. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm not doing US, I work on the Middle East and I work on political prisoners and hunger strikes and stuff. So I think uh, bringing attention to political prisoners in Egypt during COP right now is something that is, it's been covered a bit thanks to the journalists who are covering it, but it's falling under the radar with all the stuff I'm talking about these days, the US elections and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, it's an important story that's always there. Ian, how about you? Uh, this is going to be a bit sublime to the ridiculous, but Ke- Kevin O'Neill, um, who's a British comics artist, has just died. He's um, the artist that was responsible for books like Nemesis and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And normally this is, I, I know, of consequence to absolutely almost no one, apart from sort of British comics readers who grew up in the 70s and 80s. And for them, the stuff that he did on Nemesis was this. I mean, this is a guy whose art style was blacklisted in the US when he went over not because of any of the drawings he did, but because of his actual art style was just considered intolerable to be put anywhere near a mainstream publication because it was just so disturbing. Like instinctively against power by virtue of the fact that they could exist at all and that broke any kind of taboo or regulation you might have around them. I'm just really, really glad he was there and I'm, I'm terribly sad that we've lost him. Did he mellow with age or did he continue to be... His art style was always deeply deeply distressing. I mean, even The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which has turned into that film, dreadful fucking film, absolutely brilliant comic. I mean, even there, it still had that that kind of fundamental, pr- provocative 
sort of nature to it. He was a very gentle, kind, nice man, but the work itself was just deeply challenging on a psychological level by the mere stroke of the pen. I think I'm going to have to Google this guy. Would you recommend I do that? I think you, should, I think you would love Nemesis, by the way. You would absolutely love Nemesis. It would be right up your street. It's extremely dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really too much under the radar because it's got some coverage, but I am outraged that three journalists were arrested at the Just Stop Oil protests yesterday. It is just totally unacceptable for, for journalists to be held. And I... I really hope that someone in government will stand up and say to the police forces that they've got to stop doing this. Hmm. Also, in other news, a man has thrown some eggs at Prince Charles. I just wanted to say yeah. that, Ian. This, this is bullshit. It's actually unbelievable. In York. <laughs> because of the crown or just like other reasons? I, I'm not clear, it's but there not, were several of them. It didn't, it didn't need to get said. She just enjoys mocking me about Prince Charles on a regular <laughs> basis. And on that basis, we're now hearing about the egg throwers. Sorry, Ian. Right. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Julie Norman. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. And to Arthur. Thank you for having me. And Ian. Thank you very much indeed, you Republican fiend. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget a very, oh God, what now? Christmas on Monday the 12th of December at 21 Soho. There's a ticket link in the show notes. And if you're a Patreon backer, your discount code still works. Seats are limited, so be quick and don't miss out. Now, stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of the still huge backlog of generous supporters. Hello, guys. Thank you very much to Yvonne Hewitt, Adam Peake, Alex Davidson, Rob Massey, Alex, Justin Lynch, Hello James, Peter, Andrew Hewitson, and Guy C. Hi, and many thanks from me to Julien Lhomme, Becky McGrath, Daver, John McNeil Scott, Nvil, that's an interesting one, uh, Florian, John Brady, Carol, Theo Gibson, and Paul Sermon. And finally, all the very best from me to Jonathan Hendry, James Picton, Rich Bird, Camilla Kennedy, Ben Campbell, Karen, Philip Fry, Nick Webb, Hugh, and James O'Shea. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Roz Taylor with Arthur Snell and Ian Dunn. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese and Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Is it all over for the little blue bird? Elon Musk has driven away users and advertisers since he took over Twitter. My feed is full of people who've just set up a presence on Mastodon and are tooting there. <laughs> Ian, have you gone Mastodon yet? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Uh, do you plan to? I, uh, I'm sort of, I think I've ended up like, what's his name in, in the vampire thing? Where I'm just like, let's just see if we can get to the Winchester and just <laughs> let this whole thing blow over. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm just like, maybe it's going to be all right. I don't know. And I get it. You're hedging. Basically, you're hedging. And so you're like, I've got to save space over here if this all goes tits up. So I get it. That makes sense. And I would have, pro- you know, and arguably I would have probably done it. But every message I see is it's just like, which server? And like, before even they get to the end of the word server, I'm like, yeah, it's not for me. Like, that just sounds too common. I can't be dealing with that. I have no technology. You know, you know that the internet is all about servers, yeah?
Yeah, but I don't have to deal with that. Like, I mean, you go, it's not like, you know, I have to deal with a server when I go to a website or something. I don't know. I don't, I mean, if I'm completely honest, I don't know what a server is. So, you know, I just, that, that's a level of DIY that I can't be getting into, really. There's actually a pub at called the Winchester towards the end of our road. And, you know, we can't go there for obvious reasons. Because if we went to the Winchester, that would be the end. That was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.